All I can say is keep the babies coming. When Jesus said, be fruitful and multiply, you folks took that so seriously. Today I'm reading from the Gospel of John as we continue through the series. John chapter 11, starting with verse 17. In one of the uh, uh, more famous miracles Jesus ever did. Starting with verse 17. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who has come into the world. After she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house, comforting her, noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, they asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odor, for he has been there four days. Then Jesus said, did I, tell you, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. And Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Jesus had left Jerusalem and Judea after the religious leaders there were trying to kill him. And while he was gone, one of Jesus' closest friends, Lazarus, became sick and died. Jesus, even from a distance, knew what was happening to his friend. In fact, he knew Lazarus had been sick and died even before he and the disciples found out through natural means. He said, let us go back to Judea. And the disciples, in essence, said, wait a minute, didn't we just run from our, for our lives from Judea? It's too dangerous. The last time you were there, they wanted to stone you. Why in the world are we going back? But Jesus insisted, 
And Thomas, good old positive, optimistic Thomas said, let's go with him. We'll all die together. You know, there's one of those in every crowd. They have the gift of negativity. You can give them a million dollars and they'll start worrying about the taxes. You know, it's just somebody always, there's always somebody in the crowd that sees the worst possible outcome of everything. By the time Jesus got back to the home of Mary and Martha, Lazarus had been dead for four days. Martha runs to Jesus. Lord, if you had been here, Lazarus would not have died. To which Jesus responds, your brother will rise again. And Martha, being a good theologian, said, I know he will rise again on the last day. And Jesus says, you know what, Martha? Let me tell you a secret. I am the resurrection. I am the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. According to Jesus, resurrection is not primarily a day. It is not primarily event, although it, it certainly is those things. But according to Jesus, resurrection is a person. And he was and is that person. Wherever Jesus goes, resurrection breaks forth. Life comes into death. Healing comes into brokenness. Jesus' presence resurrects the dead places in our hearts and lives. His life in us resurrects us from the wages of sin, even death itself. Even though our body dies, resurrection life in us cannot be snuffed out or taken from us. If we believe in him, his life pours into us, fills us, changes us, and gives us life and power. Even the grave itself cannot extinguish. Every person here today, in a real sense, has already been resurrected. In a real sense, we're just waiting for our bodies and this planet to catch up with what God has already done in our spirits. Because the life of Jesus is already in us and operating through us. And even after our bodies die, resurrection will just be getting started. Then Jesus calls Mary. She says to Jesus the same thing Martha said to Jesus. If you had been here, my brother would not have died. And it says that when Jesus saw her weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit. It's hard to capture in English what the Greek conveys here. The word for deeply moved occurs only three or four times in the entire New Testament. It was associated with a profound sense of indignation, of anger. It is the word the Greeks used to, to describe a horse snorting with rage. Before Jesus gets sad, Jesus gets mad. He is indignant. It showed who or what was Jesus angry at. It was certainly not Mary and Martha and the mourners. Jesus at that moment was angry at death itself. He was angry at the pain sin had unleashed into the world. He was angry that good people like Lazarus got sick and died. He was angry that people that he loved suffered in this fallen and messed up world. There are times when we need to be angry and sin not. Injustice should make us angry. Racism should make us angry. Starving children should move us in our spirits too. Abused and molested children should bring out the outrage in all of us. There are times when apathy is the sin, not anger. By the way, anger is often a part of grief. 
Sometimes we need to let hurting people be angry as a healthy part of the grief process. I grew up, I was born, and from the early days of my life, I went to the Fairlawn Presbyterian Church. And when I was in grade school, probably the third or fourth grade, I went to Mrs. Bailey's Sunday school class, and she would give us candy for memorizing Bible verses. And so uh, she said, I don't care what verses you memorize. I'm not going to assign them. And she said, I don't even care if you repeat certain Bible verses. And there it was discovered, I discovered Jesus wept. <laughs> it is the shortest of all the verses in Scripture. And I rode that candy pony for a year. <laughs> it was my favorite verse for all the wrong reasons. Jesus wept. Why? Because he was sharing the heartache of everyone around that tomb. He felt the sorrow and their sorrow and entered into it with them. When Jesus saw the pain of Mary and Martha and the friends from the village of Lazarus, it touched him to his core. Now, I don't know about you, but if I would have been there with the power Jesus had, with the knowledge Jesus had, I would have said, come on, everybody. Stop all this weeping and crying and get a grip. I'm going to fix this in a minute. Instead, it says he was so troubled by their pain and entered into it so fully that Jesus cried with an intensity that made his whole body shudder, according to the Greek verb for Jesus, weeping. Jesus didn't just have a tear or two streaming down his face. He sobbed. He wept. He was racked with grief. As Isaiah says, surely he took our infirmities and carried our sorrows. And he still does. As the writer of Hebrews says, he is still touched by our infirmities and weaknesses. He is still touched by our pain. In fact, he still bears the scar of the cross in order to identify with our weaknesses and pain forever. When Jesus rose from the dead, he threw off death and he threw off sin, but he kept the scars to identify with us. Please hear this. In the middle of every fear, in the middle of every depression, in the middle of every hurt, in the middle of every loneliness, there stands Christ holding our pain and redeeming it and healing it from the inside out. There is not a single hurt or tragedy that he did not nor does not take on to himself and that he does not enter fully into. Steve Schwartz reminded me of, a, of an illustration I had used 10 years ago, and I was impressed because he still remembered it. I don't remember stuff I said 10 years ago. I'm impressed when somebody does. And he reminded me of a book entitled Lament for a Son by Nicholas Walterstorff. He was a Yale professor who lost his 25-year-old son in a mountain climbing accident. He grieved. And he said, I have no cosmic answers for why my son died. But he concluded with this insight, which is one of the more profound insights I've ever read. He said, through the prism of my tears, I have seen a suffering God. It is said that God said of God that no one can behold his glory and live. I have always thought this meant that no one could see his splendor and live. But during my suffering, he said, a friend said to me, perhaps what that means is that no one can see Christ's sorrow and live. No one can see 
the pain the Father bears and live. Or perhaps his sorrow and compassion is his splendor. Jesus is still the man of sorrows acquainted with grief because he still feels and holds our tears even as he redeems them for good and heals us. We are asked to care for people in the same way. No, I think, I think we cannot look directly at God in his glory, and I think we cannot look directly at God in his sorrow. Both of those things will overwhelm us. And so we are called to enter into someone else's pain like him and hold them the way Jesus held his friends that day. Paul Gorman was a volunteer at a hospital, and he focused on trying to cheer up children. And so he, most of the time, he would dress up as a clown and go into the hospital. And he says this, things were very tough for me at the beginning, very. You see some pretty terrible things in these children wards. Seeing children dying or mutilated is nothing most of us ever get prepared for. Nobody teaches us to face this kind of suffering. We never talk about it until we get hit in the face with it. Some of us, he said one day, were setting up to show Godzilla in the kids' leukemia ward. He said, I was making up the kids as clowns, putting on clown faces. But one kid was totally bald from chemotherapy, so I painted his whole head white and put on a clown face. And he said, when I was done, his sister said, hey, we can show the movie on Billy's head. And he loved the idea. So we set up the movie Godzilla, Godzilla and ran it on the back of Billy's bald head. And Billy was as pleased as punch. And we were almighty proud of Billy. It was quite a moment, especially when the doctors arrived. Why is everyone gathered around Billy? We're watching Godzilla. Burnt skin or bald heads on little kids. What do you do? I guess you just face it, he said. When the kids are really hurting so bad and so afraid and probably dying and everybody's heart is breaking, what do you do? You face it. You face it one day at a time and then you see what happens after that. Gorman said, one day I got the idea of traveling with popcorn. And when a kid is crying... He said, I dab around the eyes and the popcorn absorb, absorbs the tears of the crying child and I pop it into my mouth or theirs. And he says, on really bad days, we sit around together and eat each other's tears. That is what God calls us to sometimes. We are called to be tear eaters sometimes because sometimes that's all you can do with certain situations. You share each other's tears and you take the other person's tears into your own heart. By the way, that's what Jesus did 2,000 years ago. That day before he re resurrected Lazarus, Jesus was eating tears. Now, I know some people are asking, you know, and I get asked this fairly frequently, when somebody's lost a child or somebody's lost a spouse or somebody has lost a parent or good friend, what do you do? 
What's the right thing and the wrong thing to say? What do you do with that kind of pain? Betsy Burnham, who was a lady who got cancer and later died from that cancer, wrote a book, and it's entitled, When Your Friend is Dying. And she writes this, Some days I'm eager to talk about my feelings and my cancer treatments, the boredom of lying flat on my back in the hospital, my concern for my husband and the kids. Some days I'm just tired of thinking about cancer at all. I never know which mood I'll be in. But I would be delighted to have my friend ask me bluntly what I feel like talking about. This is the key to helping a suffering person. Let the suffering person set the agenda. Flow with that person. That's what the Bible says, doesn't it? Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Just be there and listen for clues. Enter into their world as best you can with sensitivity. If they want to cry, cry with them. If they want to be angry, let them be angry and hold it and say, I understand. If they want to joke, and I've often, you know, some people cope with real tragedy with dark humor. And when they do dark humor, you just laugh with that too. And some people simply want you to sit there and be silent with them. Our goal is to help people grieve, not tell people how to fix it. You, when a child dies, you cannot fix it. When someone you deeply love dies, you can't. Ha- there is no magic answer. Let me give you heads up. There's no magic answer for it. And often we do the most harmful things good-naturedly, but we do the most horrible things. We start spouting religious cliches. You know what the worst cliche is when somebody has lost somebody they love or they're dying? The worst one is God won't put on you more than you can bear. Because you know what that says to the person that has lost a child? Oh, you mean God killed my child? God took my child away because he thought I could bear it? God killed my husband because he thought I could bear it? That's what people hear. Don't say that. Don't say that. Sometimes, if you don't know what to say, sit there in silence. Because, again, I will tell you, sometimes what all people want is presence. All they want is your presence and your prayers. And you cannot fix some things. But you sure can make them worse. You know, I've noticed that, you know, when the Bible says, weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice, I've noticed this little annoying habit that I see with most of us. Instead of rejoicing with those who rejoice and weeping with those who weep, often when people are rejoicing, we try to calm them down. And often when they're weeping, we try to cheer them up. I don't know why, but it seems almost instinctive that we do the opposite of what Scripture tells us to do. We try to make people conform to our feelings and experiences instead of entering theirs. The goal to helping a broken, hurting, grieving period person is you enter into their experience. Don't tell them how they should feel. Don't give them little things. Cheer up. Things are going to be all right. Don't tell them that then. Jesus didn't. I'll never forget an event that took place years ago on Thanksgiving, a Thanksgiving weekend. I was a student chaplain 
at Richmond Memorial Hospital, the biggest hospital in the city of Richmond, Virginia. And as good fortune would have it, I was on duty for the entire Thanksgiving weekend, Thursday through Sunday. A lot of things happened that weekend that I had never encountered before and have never encountered since. And I still remember them vividly. I remember, I, you know, staying in the chaplain's quarters at the hospital. And one time in the middle of the night, they called me up and they said, get down here now. And I got up and I ran down to the nurse's station. They told me what floor to come to. And I said, what's up? And they said, there is a hysterical woman in there. Her baby was stillborn. She's Catholic and she thinks her baby is in purgatory until you baptize that baby. And I said, I'm an Anabaptist. We don't believe in baptizing infants. And they said, that woman is going to end up in the psych ward. We don't care what you believe. You go baptize that baby. And suddenly I heard the voice of the Lord. And he was saying, listen to those nurses. And they were right. Who cared what I thought about this little sliver of theology? There was a woman in agony. There was a woman who thought their baby was in agony. And what I needed to do is I went in there and I baptized that baby. And, and that woman immediately calmed down. And she immediately had a piece about it. And I realized it was better for, to me to minister to her than to dot every eye of my theology. That's what Jesus wanted that night. The next night... I was still at my quarters in the hospital trying to sleep when around 3 a.m. they told me to come to the emergency room immediately. And when I got there, a doctor informed me that a man was being brought by ambulance into the emergency room who had already died of a heart attack. There were, his family was in the waiting room, including the man's wife of 50 plus years. And they said, you need to be down here for when they get the news. When the ambulance arrived, the doctor checked the body and then informed the family about this man's death. And this man's wife of 50 plus years began to weep softly, tears flowing, when she heard that her lifetime partner was gone. And her daughter, who was sitting beside her, immediately began scolding her for her immature behavior. Daddy's gone, she hissed, and your crying won't bring him back. Now stop it right now, mother. And to my amazement, this grieving wife did. Somehow, instead of whacking her daughter in the mouth like she should have, she stifled the flow of a completely normal, needed human response and stopped weeping over the death of her lifelong companion because her daughter was uncomfortable with her mother grieving in a public place like the emergency room. It was one of the most unempathetic unloving things I've ever witnessed at such an important moment in someone's life. And I still believe to this day this daughter stopped her mother's tears because she was uncomfortable with her own. Now that's not the end of the story. Fifteen minutes later, the pastor walked in. And I don't know if he was Methodist or Baptist or whatever. He was brethren in Christ at heart. Uh, and I'll never forget what he did. He walked in, saw this old woman 
sitting there fighting back tears, sitting in the emergency room, and he walked right to her, and there he knelt on his knees in the emergency room floor right in front of her, and he looked at her, and he said, I, Mary, I am so sorry. How are you doing? And Mary immediately melted into tears. She threw her arms around her pastor. The pastor immediately threw his arms around her, and they wept and sobbed together for the next five minutes with the pastor on his knees. They wept and sobbed despite there being a room full of doctors and police and hospital administrators and nurses. There was nobody for that five minutes. There was nobody else in the room but them and Jesus. And it was a holy, holy moment. And I realized I've just seen what pastoring is really about. That night I saw what not to do. And I saw what you should do at times like that. I saw an emotionally constipated woman fail her mother because she could not accept her own pain. And I saw a pastor reflect the heart of Jesus and enter into that dear woman's broken heart. Jesus wept. Jesus wept. Why are we afraid to weep? He shuddered with grief. He wept for Lazarus and Mary and Martha and all the people that love Lazarus. He wept with his friends that day. And he weeps with us even now. Even now, our broken hearts are his broken heart. Even though one day he will heal our broken hearts. One day he will redeem that all of the, that is wrong with us and with this planet. One day he will wipe away every tear from every eye. His tender heart can ignore, cannot ignore our pain now. Even now he owns our heartbreak as his own. You see, Jesus wept and he hasn't stopped weeping. He hasn't stopped weeping. If you ever wonder what Jesus is doing in a tragedy or in a sorrow or in, in your loss, remember this. He weeps with us still. He weeps with us still. After Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, he says one more interesting thing. He tells the disciples, take off the grave clothes and let him go. You see, only God can give life. But we are called to help unbind each other. Lazarus needed someone to take the grave clothes off. And Jesus gave that responsibility to us. You see, Lazarus looked like a mummy. He couldn't get the grave clothes off himself even if he tried. Only Jesus can resurrect us. But we need each other to be free. Please understand, if those grave clothes didn't come off Lazarus, he was going to be reinfected with the same disease that killed him the first time. Those grave clothes had soaked up all kinds of bodily fluids that were full of infection. Plus, as Martha pointed out, those grave clothes stank. Or as it says in King James, they stanketh. I love that. I love that. that King James English can make anything sound good. My baby's poop stinketh. Yes. And I love this. This was so Martha. What is her first concern? If you roll away the rock from the tomb, we didn't, any, we didn't put any Febreze in there. It will stink. 
We all stink somewhere in our lives, don't we? We all struggle with some form of death in our lives, don't we? We all still have some shreds of grave clothes clinging to us. And to be free of our grave clothes, the principle that Jesus established with Lazarus still applies today. We need other people to help us remove our grave clothes. Almost no addict ever recovers by themselves, ever. And we all have our little or big addictions. I got news for you. Every person in this room has some, it might be little or big, it might be really serious and life-threatening, or it might be very small with something like, you know, I'm a controlaholic. But everybody's got an addiction in this room. Everybody has old wounds in this room. Things like shame and fear that just don't go away. You've been a Christian for 20 or 30 years, and they're still there. Some of us have been carrying secret wounds for a lifetime. And you know why we've carried them for a lifetime? Because we kept them secret. And we never let anyone get near our grave clothes. And so they just stayed there and festered, didn't they? For certain things, you know, nobody can save you but Jesus. Nobody can give you eternal life but, but Jesus. But I got to tell you something. For most of us, if we're going to be free of the stuff that really binds us, we need each other. That's the way Jesus designed it. Yolanda Lugo developed Hodgkin's disease, which is a cancer of the lymph system. For a 20-year-old woman just beginning to enjoy life, it was a devastating diagnosis, especially since physicians warned her that the disease was already spreading rather extensively through her body. Yolanda told how she asked God to give her the strength to battle her, her illness, and he did. He gave her courage and fortitude as she underwent chemotherapy and radiation treatment and surgery, and eventually her cancer went into remission, although they could not guarantee it wouldn't come back. But what she never saw or foresaw was how God would use, choose to use her illness to accomplish something that nobody else could have accomplished. The drama unfolded one day on the Verrazano Bridge. She was driving across when suddenly a man stopped his car, jumped from his car, and clambered to the top of a bridge abutment that was 200 feet above the water. Yolanda said, what are you doing? She slammed on the brakes to her car and got out. Get away from me, he said. I'm going to jump. I'm going to kill myself. Yolanda had never faced anything like this before. Like most of us, she wasn't sure what to do, so she just tried talking to him. He responded by cutting her off. Look, get out of here, he said. I know you don't care about me. And the Spirit was helping Yolanda. And she, she said, I don't care about you. I didn't have to stop, did I? I don't have to be here talking to you, do I? I want to. I want to help. And the man paused and he said, something she didn't expect. He said, well then, come on up. Yolanda wasn't fond of heights. And so she got up there where she looked down and it was a 20-story drop to the icy water below. But she only hesitated for a moment. And then Yolanda, all 99 pounds of her, climbed up there and stood on the ledge with this man. And when she managed to get close enough to the man, she tried to talk him down, but every time he would turn hostile and threaten once more to jump. 
You don't care about me, he said. Nobody does. My wife has left me. I've got all kinds of family problems. I'm going to end it all right now. And he was poised to leap. Yolanda realized she only had a split second to respond. But again, the Spirit was helping her. And when she spoke, her words stopped him cold. She said softly to him, I know about problems. The man was taken off guard. Again, he paused. What do you mean? Sounding genuinely curious. How can a person like you know about problems? And Yolanda told him, I've got cancer. Really? Where do you have cancer? Yolanda started describing her illness to him. She talked about her own fears and uncertainties. She spoke about the pain she had endured. And she explained how God had helped her cope with her circumstances. I got help, she said. Please let me help you. Several tense moments passed. And the man looked at her and said, maybe I need a friend. And Yolanda smiled. Then I'll be your friend. The writer said, I don't know if any psychiatrist could have talked that desperate man out of suicide. He was right on the edge of leaping into oblivion. But I know this. He connected with Yolanda because of the pain and problems she had gone through. God used her pain to reach that man in the unique way he needed to be reached. In the end, he climbed down with her. She accompanied him as he went on to receive counseling and spiritual help. The following days, the newspaper held Yolanda as a hero, but she would be the first to tell you that it was God who turned her illness, her liability, into an asset to save another life. God does that all the time, usually in less spectacular ways than being 20 stories above a river. For those with physical and emotional scars here today, for those who have been beaten up by life and have relational wounds, God can open up opportunities for you to influence others and help others and heal others who are going through a similar ordeal. And when he does that, it is an inspiring sight to behold. The question this morning is, are we willing to let someone help remove our grave clothes in order to help other people remove their grave clothes? Are we ready to get out on the ledge with each other, to risk, to be vulnerable, to give up our pride or shame or fear or secrets to someone so we can be free and so others can be free? Now, there are some problems, some addictions that are so strong, you may need special help. You may need a Christian counselor or a pastor or a very, very mature Christian. But brothers and sisters, we need to realize this this morning. Every one of us is standing on some kind of ledge this morning. All of us are fighting for our lives or our freedom this morning in some area. Yolanda and her friend shared their hurt, shared their disease, shared their dirty grave clothes. And when they did, they found out they were not alone. And in that moment, the grave clothes started falling off. Take off the grave clothes and let him go, Jesus said. Because freedom, real freedom, is a group endeavor. If you really want to be free, you know, I can, I can make you, a, I'll make a blanket statement and I know it's true. There are hidden prisons all over this room. 
There are people in bondage all over this room. And you know why they stay in prison? Because it's a secret. And they don't get help. If you want, you know, it's in the recovery movement, Pastor Cedric can tell you this. You're only as sick as your secrets. We all have a choice to make. Do we want to look good or do we want to be free? That's always the choice you have to make. I invite you to freedom this morning in Jesus Christ. But I have the condition, the one condition is 99% of the time in order to be free, you're going to have to trust another human being, not just Jesus. That's the condition. And that's why so many of us stay in prison. It's a group endeavor. I'd like the worship team to come forward. I'd like the intercessors to come forward. Some of you, I invite to come up for prayer or to call this week or do something if you're really, really tired of your prison. If you're really tired of carrying that secret for 20 or 30 years or five years or whatever it is, if you're really tired of being in jail, the good news is there's a way out. Do you want to get out? There's one condition. Jesus and somebody to help remove the grave clothes. Amen? Let us sing. The altar is open. Would you stand? You unravel me